Hi there. This is the A Lot To Say podcast, a conversation-based project focused on unconventional career paths and the projects that consume us. I'm your host, Gary Williams, or Gaz, as many call me. And A Lot To Say is part of the Alt Projects family of content, uh, obsessing about the overlap between creativity, technology, and culture. I'm fortunate to spend my days working alongside technologists, artists, researchers, and people who just generally give a damn about the world we live in. And I'm very lucky to be able to hear of some incredible career journeys over that time from some really inspiring people. So I am particularly energized by the projects that I hear people are experimenting and tinkering on along the way. And I thought, you know what, it's time to put these stories out there with the A Lot To Say podcast project. I can't wait for you to hopefully discover some new and lesser known stories about the things people get wrapped up in and what led them to this point. This is A Lot To Say. Thanks for joining me for episode seven of A Lot To Say podcast. I'm joined on this um, really awesome chat by Cormac Sheehan. Um, who's Cormac? Well, apart from being, you know, 100% Irish to his core, um, <laughs> the simple description is he's the he's the founder and director of Purpose Communications, which is Australia's most ethical marketing agency. And he's the founder of pro-cannabis movement, Green Planet. Um, he's been involved in the punk hardcore scene for years now, and we dive into that uh, a fair bit during the chat, but I guess before going into the many things that Cormac's done, I'll talk a, a tiny bit about how we got to know each other and connect, um, which has been really nice, actually, um, and I had a really great experience approaching him to uh, participate in this conversation. We met at Pause Fest in February 2020. Pause Fest is a um, technology, creative, and business-focused um, conference that runs in Melbourne yearly. I was emceeing and helping to program the festival um, this year and other years. Um, and this year in particular, he was delivering a chat on the future of the cannabis industry. And I think I gravitated towards him both from a, um, a shared interest in punk hardcore music, amongst other things, but also drew the, the admiration I had for the way he really expressed his forthright opinions about, about ethical business behavior, uh, about equality, about mental health and about being cognizant of the way that one can be perceived. Um, and in that, being quite cognizant in, uh, I guess, promoting or advocating for a cannabis information advocacy uh, framework um, whilst being, you know, someone covered in tattoos and um, with long hair and definitely have, having that sort of punk hardcore metal vibe. So for legitimacy for the message, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, he understood what was sort of also needed to achieve that cut through with audiences um, wanting to understand a bit more about the world we live in in relation to cannabis. Um, so what did we explore in the chat? You know, in the process of diving into this chat, um, and also the complexity of launching out a podcast project. That's a that's another episode in itself. Um, but one, I had this really nice experience where I was absolutely floored. I approached Cormac to speak, and he sent me back this almost dossier of his life that he'd sort of jotted down and in some sort of sequential order had sort of mapped the journey his life had taken, um, what he prioritized and cared about as part of that journey. And it, it sort of struck me in that moment uh, for me, how fortunate a position it is to, to be able to hear these stories about people's lives and then to talk about them. He, he mentioned some aspects in there that I, I was not quite 
um, expecting. Um, and, and that's not necessarily to do with just cannabis, which obviously we, we do focus on as part of his work. But, you know, and you may assume we just talked about weed and bongs and joints and whatever, but we actually had a large chat about um, elements of DIY, which is something I gravitate towards and um, fully embrace, as well as work-life balance, um, discipline, and social trends. So I really enjoyed it, but uh, I, I've got to say I've, um, with Cormac and with others who've mapped out their their life's journey, it's been this unexpected, um, really lovely part of running this podcast and hearing about other people's journey, something I get um, quite inspired by. So without waffling on um, too much longer, this is my chat with Cormac Sheehan as part of the A Lot To Say podcast. Thanks for joining. Cheers. All right. So for this episode of A Lot To Say uh, podcast, we have Cormac Sheehan. Thanks for joining us, Cormac. No worries, guys. Hope you're well. Yeah, you too. You too. I'm really, really pleased to have you um, on today, both uh, for a few reasons. We first met each other very briefly um, at Pause Fest uh, this year in 2020 um, in sort of like, I, I guess those sort of strange circumstances, like backstage of a technology conference in a green room in a convention center. It's not the, uh, not the sort of like the conventional, uh, I guess, meeting space when you consider, I guess, the things we quickly found in common. <laughs> yeah, no, it was actually quite striking because we were both rushing as far as I remember. We, you know, we were in the middle of multiple talks and, and responsibilities at the festival, but, um, for some reason it was, you know, a look and a nod and we started chatting and found so many dualities. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was obviously drawn to a, a few things. I mean, you just delivered your talk. You were, you were essentially talking about, um, I, I guess the future of the cannabis industry and painting a picture for, uh, for people in terms of the work that you do, how you found your way into that advocacy space and also, you know, what the future will likely entail. Um, but also I guess, a. A natural gravitation as well. We we quickly found some common interests in, I guess, the music space, um, particularly within punk hardcore scene. And I think it was quite funny because you were speaking that day and then going to a show that evening. Um, so unfortunately, I couldn't go. But um, yeah, I just I just quickly had you in mind um, straight away for um, some upcoming things. And I'm really pleased to have you today and some other stuff upcoming. But tell us a bit about. I guess, where you are now. So where's home now and where was home um, originally? Well, I've been in Melbourne for 10 years now. Um, my my wife is Australian. I grew up in Sydney. And I first left Ireland in my early 20s. And I grew up around Ireland, some in the countryside, some in the city. And I moved to Copenhagen to study uh, when I was 21 or 22. And I stayed there because I ended up uh, starting a band, which did quite well and was touring and recording a lot before I went back to Ireland to finish my degree. And after that, ended up um, going to Mexico. I was on tour there and ended up staying there and, and living and, and teaching English there. Uh, and after that, I moved to London, lived there for a few years and then moved to Melbourne. Uh, you know, it's... It's funny you're telling the journey because um, for context for everyone, I mean, I approached you to speak on this and you gave me this incredible summary of your life, um, I guess in sort of some sort of sequential order, which was amazing. I mean, that that's one thing I've, I've really enjoyed throughout creating this podcast is, you know, hearing about 
I guess, people's backgrounds, but often it's on the fly and it's in the context of this interview, whereas you've, you've, after the approach to appear, you've been taken umbrage and basically mapped out um, the last 20 plus years of your life um, for me. So it's a huge privilege like for me to read it. But um, what we'll dive into today is some, some really interesting themes and you, you've honed in on these in the summary and we'll get to them throughout the talk. So around um, the concept of work and life balance, um, also discipline, um, and storytelling. So the apparent thing people would gravitate to is, oh, we'll, we'll be talking about weed and cannabis quite a bit, but um, in reality, it's this journey of um, you getting there. It's it's incredible. So let's on that note, let, let's talk about what you do right now in terms of Green Planet, um, set the scene for everyone, and then we'll talk a bit about your journey to get there. Okay. Well, um it's interesting what you've brought up around storytelling and so on, because it was also a, a privilege for me to have an excuse to tell myself my own story, because we're all changing all the time. <laughs> you know, we don't know where we're going. Yeah. And, and often you read these stories of people, how they got somewhere, and you're like, wow, I could never do that. How did they do that? And the secret is they don't have a clue either. They're just stumbling around. But often you find themes. And I think this is something that people don't often do enough is tell themselves their own story and figure out what it is because there's not one version you know I didn't include everything I ever did in there just the things that are relevant to where I am now mm. and often it's hard to figure out uh, those things and, and Green Planet is, is a perfect example of that um, which grew out of myself and uh, Dr David Stapleton um, who is a biochemist who worked at the University of Melbourne for 25 years we met uh, pretty randomly um, in 2017 when I had started getting interested in things like CBD, which had helped me personally a lot with depression and anxiety. And he needed someone to do his uh, marketing and communications, which is, is my area of expertise. And so we formed a cannabis company um, selling things like hemp, uh, hemp seed oil, hemp flour, hemp protein, because that had all just become legal at the end of 2017, November 14th uh, in that year. And right. then, um, or November 12th, actually. And that led to a lot of other products. The company got really big really quickly. And that was a perfect example of here was this thing that was in my life, which was cannabis uh, from the age of 16 or 17 um, in different ways. And, you know, people say, do what you love, but you never really expect that you'll be putting together your career in marketing and, and communications with something like cannabis, which, you know, if you told me that was happening when I was 16, uh, I would have been pre pretty enthusiastic about the whole idea. <laughs> yeah, um, but to, to, uh, to jump ahead a bit, uh, cannabis company uh, wasn't going exactly how I wanted, despite being very successful. So myself and um, Dr. Dave both left the company in towards the end of last year and uh, both started new initiatives, uh, him with a company called Aganix, uh, A-G-A-N-I-C-S, and me with Green Planet, which was more focused on advocacy and storytelling. And a lot of that was impacted by what I'd seen in the legalized cannabis industry around the world, which is starting to replicate um, the same structural inequalities that you get in most industries, i.e. everything is owned by already rich white men. Um, which is a great pity because they haven't been the people who have um, developed the medicine, who have used it in the folk tradition and so on for the past hundreds of years. 
and I didn't want to see them uh, have another free ride of just stealing other people's work and value from them. So mm. I started trying to think what's the best what's what's the best way I can impact this, and it came back to advocacy and storytelling. Amazing. I, I think um, I. I... One sentiment that you conveyed, um, particularly in your talk at Pause, and um, and which has shone through uh, through numerous press publications, um, and then also what you provided for me in, in prep for this talk was around, you know, you being very cognizant of um, people's perception of you if you're an advocate and a storyteller, and also um, I, I guess the the roles that yourself and Dr. David both played in. Uh, you know, bringing cannabis company to the fore and, and I guess um, garnering legitimacy or um, interest from people who might look beyond a 30-year-old guy with tattoos and, and punk rock nature. Yeah, and that's a really important point. And it's about um, allies, you know, and things you can do. There are certain things I can do that he can't do or you can't do and, and vice versa. Um, whether that's our networks, uh, whether it's our parents, whether it's our respectability um, and you know to a certain extent in my professional life I'm, I'm 38 now I have a lot of successes under my belt so I'm able to get away with it because at a certain point you cross over from being the weird guy to being the weird guy the weird successful guy <laughs> um, and for some reason people you know like you a lot more when you're able to prove that you're successful and they don't seem to go that deep with it they just need to have the tick of approval from other people um, and, you know, that's that's really great. But the sort of wilderness years when, when you're in the hinterland until you get there can be strange. You know, it's um, I haven't had to go to a job interview uh, for a number of years. But when I did, you'd be presenting yourself as a typical corporate um, look. You know, you have the haircut, you have the shirt and the collar. Um, but then it's a bit uh, less than it used to be. But it's a bit strange for people when they look down and see tattoos on your hands and so on. Mm. Um, but that's something that's changing where appearances aren't as important but there is still a lot of uh, preconceptions people have over that so within green planet so you're you're essentially informing um existing audience who are naturally attracted and obviously a new audience on cannabis and hemp and cbd oil um you're explaining about thc um i guess uses of uh, cannabis, such as psychedelic therapies for mental illness and so on. Um, so you're within this advocacy space. I guess we'll talk a little bit about um, your focus on research and study, but um, how how do you sort of, what's the, I guess, the mindset of the people who are sort of coming in and stumbling across what you do? What are they conveying to you personally in terms of, um, I guess, your skills in terms of storytelling, if that makes sense? Well, a lot, a lot of the visitors to the site and the people who leave comments and email me are very grateful um, just to have uh, a platform they feel they can trust, which is trying to give this nonpartisan information on cannabis. And that's really gratifying because that was the intention. Um, overall, the idea is for it to be a place to find honest information and also to be a bit of a watchdog for the industry in general, mm. because you get a lot of people with vested interests. Um, and you'll have seen this if you're interested in the space at all. Over the last two or three years, there's a lot of people selling different products which claim to be things like CBD or uh, medicinal, and they're not. Um, so 
people are, are happy to have a source for information that they can trust. But that's a challenge for me because I'm an advocate for cannabis. I think it's good. But a lot of other people who you meet who are advocates, they have a blind spot. They can't admit that there's challenges and there's problems with it, whether that's uh, to do with the criminal nature of it at the moment or whether to do with potential negative uh, effects on motivation, uh, how it can be negative for people with certain sensitivities around uh, mental health or mental illness. So I'm trying to tread a middle course where people can go, this is genuine information. It's skeptical about the problems. It's positive about the benefits, but it's cited with proper research and I feel I can trust it. That's what I want people to uh, walk away with. And we're obviously in a a relatively formative um, time in regards to legalisation currently. So we're talking about um, some current activity relating to policy um, changes emerging. Did you want to, I guess, make comment on what's, what you see as on the horizon currently? Yeah, um, so it was a landmark decision uh, earlier this year. I think it was January 31st, ACT decriminalised uh, personal cannabis possession. Uh, and as we've seen, uh, the sky hasn't fallen down. You know, nothing bad has happened. Uh, it's, it's quite positive. I haven't looked at statistics since, but there probably will be interesting ones to see there in terms of crime, arrests, etc. And at the moment, um, Fiona Patton, who is a Victorian MP, is, uh, I think, how would I say it? She's, um, I, I guess she's driving a parliamentary inquiry into what safe legalisation of cannabis would mean, uh, asking questions around what do we do to protect underage people and children from it and so on. So the conversation is happening. And I think it's going to become really relevant in the next few years for um, less direct reasons, one of which is the economy. And there's huge benefits. Billions and billions of dollars are spent every year in Victoria alone on illegal cannabis. And that money could be taxed. It could be used for uh, all sorts of positive social benefits. And on the other side, uh, we're in a period of massive global upheaval. Um, this is demonstrated not just by what you see on the news, but over the last 10 years, the hugely increasing instances of anxiety and depression in people of all ages. And people try and medicate against this with pharmaceuticals. And the thing is, we're anxious and depressed for a reason. We're depressed because the world is looking very depressing when we read the news. And something which is really positive about cannabis is, in my experience, as compared to um, pharmaceuticals and antidepressants, um, cannabis doesn't do the same thing in terms of switching off your brain, switching off your emotions and your empathy so that you can get through the day. Instead, it allows you to view them in a softer way, is my experience. You can still interact with those depressive feelings, but it's not like it's got its claws into you. And so I think things like THC and CBD will become relevant for more and more people over the coming years as a softer way to deal with their anxiety and depression and mental health challenges because the world is going to be very challenging over the next decade. Mm, yeah, it certainly shall. I think it's um, it's also important because um, someone like yourself who, again, leaning on that storytelling aspect, um, people do not need to understand a bit more about the the world that they live, live in and um, 
you know, lobbying and um, advocacy within the sort of political realm um, can be hard to understand for your, your wider public. And that's why um, I guess the content that you put out, particularly through Green Planet, is um, so important and people need a also a person you know, or people to gravitate towards to um, who are indicating somewhat of a sense of truth or a source of truth, I should say. So um, it's certainly certainly needed and certainly important. But we'll we'll come we'll come back to that because I'm really interested to continue discussing. I guess you know some of the projects and products that you've been involved in pushing out um, over the last few years. Pushing, I make it sound so um, <laughs> no, so nefarious. But let's go back <laughs> to I guess you've you've um, <laughs> you, you've you've been you, you've had this storied sort of like I guess journey around the world, but it's um. Uh, less around Wanderlust and more around, I guess, some circumstances where work and life and, um, and, and particularly bands and music have sort of collided and coincided and, and I guess has dictated in some ways your journey um, around the world. So you were in Denmark, you were studying um, over there, you started the bands um, which became quite successful called NDT. And, uh, and and tell us about that time you got you got sidetracked from your study, but you would have had intentions in uh, continuing on with English, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so I guess from when I was a teenager onwards, music just took over for me. Uh, music was the center of everything. I'd be uh, spending all my time and money on music, trying to go to gigs because uh, I grew up in the countryside, so there wasn't much going on. But at that stage, you would uh, you would communicate with people by snail mail, you know, by letters, uh, making tapes and mixtapes for each other. And um, that was a bit of a lifeline to me to an outside world because I, I grew up, all my teenage years were in a very small town in Ireland called Roscommon, which is a bit backwards. J- just for context, um, Ireland made the headlines a few years ago when uh, gay marriage was legalised. There's 32 counties in Ireland. Roscommon was the only county that voted against it. So it's a pretty, um, you know, moving there from Dublin uh, in 1995 felt like going 20 years back into the past. So there wasn't much going on for people who were interested in music and so on. So that sort of became the centre of my life uh, through secondary school, uh, through uh, university. That was my main focus aside from, from the studies. And the reason for studying English was just because I loved writing. And the only thing I really wanted to do was tell stories, write fanzines, write about music and so on. But in Ireland, there weren't many opportunities for that. Uh, as you know, it's an island nation. It's on the edge of Europe. Uh, and when you're touring and making music on a shoestring budget, having to get ferries with a van and gear and everything just makes it untenable in terms of the, the cost of it. Mm. Uh, and likewise, it was hard hard to find others, other people in Ireland with the same hunger for that. So the first time I left Ireland on my own was in, uh, I think, 2003. And I travelled around Europe with some friends, um, you know, just a kind of inter-rail type thing. And I visited Copenhagen at the time, and they had this fantastic punk scene there centred around this autonomous uh, youth house that was called Ungdomshuset, uh, which means the youth house in Danish. Right. And so that place impressed me so much that um, I was feeling very stifled in Dublin. Nothing much was happening. So I talked to um, the people at my university about uh, and the potential for doing Erasmus 
which is a year of overseas study. And the only place they had left was Copenhagen. Uh, and nobody wanted to go there because the person the year before didn't have a good experience because I was that was an undergraduate degree. She was put studying with the master's students because English was a second language there. So that was roughly the same standard. And that meant there was only four contact hours a week. And this was music to my ears. I was like, great, I can study for four hours, uh, do my reading for the other 20 hours and all the rest of the time I can focus on music yeah. uh, around this youth house. So that's that's basically what I did, and it all took on uh, momentum and a life of its own. And the band uh, NDT got quite popular. We started touring a lot and getting a lot of offers. So then I um, put off going back to Ireland to finish my degree uh, for an extra year. And um, after that, we had more and more opportunities with the band, and that just started being a vehicle uh, for me to travel around the world with with a reason, you know, and. A lot of that is, um, you know, you would have found yourself from being in a band and being involved with the, the uh, music scene. Um, it gives people a, an excuse to chat to you. Um, so you're no longer a stranger in a new town. You're uh, a, that guy who was in that band. Mm. So people have an excuse to chat to you and you can make friends easily with people and suddenly find yourself with a social network. And, and um, that was sort of how it became so embedded in my life. And the two things started to uh, orbit each other so much yeah that's um that's really cool i mean i I certainly wouldn't have wouldn't have done as as much um prolific touring as you've done but um i mean with ndt what you mapped out you you toured throughout europe asia mexico um australia you know it's some significant touring and um i think what i especially liked is when you sort of you're drawing these connections so when you got into journalism later um you were referencing how you had this background in blogs and DIY um, punk fanzines and so on, um, which I really love. I mean, I, I like just a tiny bit about me when I was in a band, I always treated it as a hobby. Um, and so it's only upon reflection a few years down the track that I've, you know, learned to appreciate some of the skills I gathered throughout there, um, some of which was, you know, scrapping things together, creating events out of nothing, um, but, a, but a, a very formative skill which I picked up then which people in the professional world call networking, I guess. Um, but for me, it sort of broke down a lot of the pretension in just approaching people from other bands um, directly. And and yeah, I also had an excuse to ask them whether it was playing a gig together or, um, you know, even just slinging our music their way and seeing what they thought. So I always appreciated that, but probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time, certainly later in reflection. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it's not you're doing it at the time because you have passion for it, and you're not putting on your own your own gigs and doing your own demos and writing your own fanzines um, because you're paid for it. You're doing it out of passion, and you're also doing it out of necessity because no one's going to do it for you. So it gives you that do-it-yourself mindset, yeah. which has been so useful in my professional career. Whereas a lot of other people doing marketing and communications, if they don't have budget, they don't know where to start. Whereas I've never worked with a budget. Yeah. It's always been, you know, on the smell of an oily rag. Like you just do what you can with what you have. And that has that has been extremely useful for me in all parts of my life. And that all came from my involvement in underground music and, and the punk scene. That's awesome. I, I think um there was one further point that you referenced throughout this, which was I guess some more I guess your recognition of um I guess understanding that you were transitioning into this hybrid work life 
uh, things. So both both complemented the other. You didn't really see any separation between the two. Did you want to talk through that just a little bit? Um, because you did mention that it enabled you to become a good researcher and a disciplined learner. But uh, but I think obviously you weren't making a full distinction between one or the other. Yeah. Um, well, it's, again, you know, the benefit of hindsight. All of this makes sense in retrospect, but at the time you're you're just living your life and um, do, doing what, what comes to you. But um, with the way those things develop, um it's it's um it's really interesting when you when you look back because for example the journalism the paid journalism came out of somebody in an american uh, magazine metal maniacs it's not published anymore it's quite a big one mm -hmm. who interviewed N ndt and i just said to him uh how did you get into this could you give me some advice because you know i'm finishing my degree i've done fanzines and i would like to uh do some paid journalism how do i get started and he gave me advice and gave me work um, and it all started from that and that's one of the things where people ask sometimes what's your advice you know on on getting to do what you want to do and it's just ask people are embarrassed to ask a lot of the times if you don't ask you're not going to get an answer mm. so they sit there uh twisting themselves up into knots going oh maybe i'm not good enough maybe i shouldn't try because the fear of failure is huge for all of us but if they don't ask, they'll never get the answer. So if you do want something like that, you just ask. And that's where a lot of the things that have happened in my life have come from just chancing my arm and just going, well, why not? And that's um, that's one of the things where you do put yourself out there, but often there are, there are rewards to it. And that's yeah. one of the things that has helped me make those connections between the different parts of my life where, um, for example, at the moment, because... Um, I, I, I don't, Green Planet is a, is a passion project at this stage. There's no money in it. Um, and so my money comes from doing marketing and communications consulting. Um, and at, at the moment, in the last few months, I've been working on everything from um, with a, a Japanese video game company to um, run the jewels and an American hip hop band whose new album is about to come out. And, uh, and I guess quite relevant um particularly this week um being that killer mike has just delivered a sort of a sterling um speech um from atlanta so must be quite a um like how did you end up here you know <laughs> like in this type of environment working for japanese companies doing stuff for run the jewels crazy yeah and it's crazy and it's you know it all uh comes comes out of um my involvement in punk going back to that and connections you make and not knowing where you'll end up and it's a good litmus test for me where you know if i'm feeling overloaded and stressed and i'm not sure about what i'm doing or i'm out of my depth i go look just relax a minute imagine if 16 year old you could see you now he would be so over the moon and it's a nice uh, it's a nice touch point for me to go back to to go yeah this is the life you wanted and this is the life you have and appreciate it and be grateful for it because you could just be uh, sitting in, in an office or, uh, to, you know, sell, selling something you don't care about, selling something you're not interested in. And being able to choose my own career path, where on one hand, I'm doing things I'm passionate about, creative things in music. Uh, on the other hand, I've been able to get great clients in the area of homelessness and domestic violence and various not-for-profits and sustainability. So it's able to um, fulfill all my needs to do meaningful work and to do creative work at the same time. 
And it's, you know, none of these things are a path. There's no path. You know, if you say, I want to do this, no one's going to say, do this course or do that course. It's a lot of it is just putting yourself out there and taking a chance. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we'll lean into, um, I guess, the work you do in in ethical marketing. Uh, I'd also be interested in finding out the parallels by taking a chance or asking um, on how you connected with Dr. David Stapleton. But before we get there, um, yeah, look, I mean, I mean, for when you talk about underground music, we're talking about a very, um, very harsh musical environment. It's one I've, I've been um, like relatively involved in, but we're talking about, oh, look, you could probably call it crust punk, black and hardcore thrash metal sort of vibes. Did you want to talk about, I guess, the, the scene you found yourself in um, you know, over the years and also obviously some common misconceptions about the people that predominantly occupy that scene? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there is a lot of misconceptions um, around it. And, you know, some of those are, are from the people inside it because there is a sort of a rebel mindset and people like to be seen as different and individual. Um but a lot of that came naturally to me because we had moved around a lot when I was a kid. Like we, I was born in Cork in the south of Ireland um, and we moved to Dublin when I was five and then moving to Roscommon when I was 13. Um, it's, you're, all, you're immediately seen as an outsider. You know, if you're from Dublin, you're supposed to be good at sports and you're supposed to be good at fighting. And I wasn't particularly good at either. Um, but you're kind of pushed into both. So you go, okay, well, I'll go along with this. You know, you're 13, you're trying to fit in. Because um, I, I, I was quite big for, for my age as well. Um, so then people go, oh, it's a big, stupid guy from Dublin. So I started taking pleasure in proving to people that I was actually smart, you know, and, and I would have other students in the class go, um, oh, I was surprised when the teacher asked about this thing in, let's say, in religion class or in history class, and you have a provocative question or, or, or answer. Uh, they're saying, I thought you were stupid because you were from Dublin or because of the way you look. So I started to take pleasure and take pride in upsetting people's expectations, Yeah. Um, which can be a double-edged sword, you know, because you don't want to be caught in controversy just for the sake of it. But at the same time, it's good to be able to, um, to be able to stand alone and stand on your own two feet and not have to follow the crowd, which is a lot of what uh, those underground music scenes are about whether that is uh, punk uh, or hardcore or metal or increasingly these days now it's hip-hop, it's hip-hop and rap. Um, and I think if I was a teenager these days, that's probably what I'd be more interested mm. in rather than the heavier musics. Um, because, you know, punk and hardcore is, is somewhat progressive. Um, metal really isn't. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. But you go to metal gigs these days and you'll seldom find uh, anyone under the age of 30 there's very few women, very few people of colour. Mm-hmm. And at least I can say that in the punk scene, it has taken on uh, criticisms and challenges and tried to make it more welcoming, uh, tried to make it, to give a voice to um, people whose voices aren't heard so much. And all these kind of things are, are something that you learn um, basically through osmosis, you know, through being there long enough that it just kind of seeps in um, without having to... Um, go home and read Chomsky all night, and which a lot of people do. But um, through, you know, your involvement, you start to pick up a lot of things. Um, yeah, which are which to me are positive sociopolitical 
uh, mindsets to to have and to interrogate yeah and so your your musical journey i mean you've played on over 30 releases you let me know um you've started record labels um and after well i mean obviously some bands become new bands um so mdt um you then played in another band called chromosome that went to the usa japan southeast asia multiple times so continuing on that journey and then you've um you have a current band called Geld um, here in Melbourne, but you, uh, by the same token, you have continued to tour internationally, not for the short term, obviously, but um, how has that experience been, uh, I guess, ha- being within that scene, but then within Australia and Melbourne, because um, distance is a challenge here. It's, it's hard to do the European thing and just hop from city to city. Have you found that experience um, locally here, which has been your home for the past decade? Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, I love it, and it's very different. Um, it's really different. For for example, uh, there's something here which I found very quaint when I first came, um, which I love now, and it's how when bands, local bands, have a new album out, they'll often do a residence residency for a month. Yep. Um, you know, for gigs or whatever, which is pretty much unheard of in in the US and um, Ireland and Europe. Um, it's you know there just wouldn't be that much interest in it i think um but because there's such a limited um limited exposure to international bands because it's so hard to come over here and tour uh, from a monetary point of view and from an organizational point of view people are more self-contained and especially in melbourne there's an amazing music scene hundreds of bands that um rarely leave uh the city even uh, let alone the country Mm. and it means that people have um a very idiosyncratic and a very self-contained view on it, which which can be tough, you know, because something which you get in Ireland as well as here is that tall poppy syndrome approach, where people are afraid to branch out and they're afraid to take a chance, um, because they'll think people think uh, they're they're better than you know, people will think that they think they're better than other people, uh, which is unfortunate. But um, in terms of touring and going outside of Australia, it has been uh, much harder to organise. But that's sort of one of those things where, you know, like most younger people, I didn't really envision a life beyond 30. Uh, I had a pretty chaotic life and, you know, didn't even know if I'd live beyond 30. Yeah. And so when my, my ambitions were all about music and touring, and at a certain point, you've sort of ticked them all off. You've done everything you do. Uh, and you're like, well, why am I doing this? And you, and you realise you're doing it because you love it. Um, and nowadays, when I uh, go on tour, um, it's not the same experience. Um, it's much more just about, it, it's, how, how should I say, it's less ambitious. It's more about just being in the moment and enjoying the experience. Um, and you'd notice yourself having, having small kids as well. Now there's a new element to it where I can wake up in the morning. It doesn't matter that I have to sit in a van all day. It doesn't matter that I might be hung over. Uh, I don't have to take care of small kids while doing that for a couple of weeks, which is the biggest holiday there is. So it's um, that gives a new element and a new appreciation to it. But on the flip side, I don't like touring for a long time anymore. Like, you know, uh, five, five, ten years ago, I could have been on tour for three or four months of the year. Mm. And now I don't want to go away for more than two weeks at a time because I miss the family too much and, and they need me here. Yeah. So it's um, it, it changes, but it's, it's interesting of 
as these sort of youth cultures and DIY cultures that arose in the 70s and 80s, there's now an aging cohort of people in those who are in their 50s and 60s and still doing that, where it's changing from just a youth subculture into a genuine counterculture that um, exists throughout people's lives. Mm. And it becomes sort of a lifestyle. Um, m- most of my social life revolves around that, band practice gigs, things like that, and then t- touring when uh, when appropriate and when possible. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's certainly very easy to find that as an integral part of your life. Um, you know, for me, it was certain venues around Melbourne, particularly the art house uh, that I that I love, which is sadly now defunct. Um, but you know, many others, uh, many other friends have uh, would have you know hung around a venue like that, either playing in or or just generally finding um, you know, I, I guess a community vibe um, within them and the shared appreciation for for the scene. But of course, um, music or involvement in in music uh, is not always c- truly healthy it can also um it can also take its toll so you outlaid a little bit of um how you got into a new form of discipline which i guess was a bit of a reaction to your physical and mental health from being involved in substantial touring um and and basically the toll that being away from home can take did you want to talk about um when you started to investigate um new elements of exercise and what that did for you personally yeah so yeah, um, I got I, I started training in Muay Thai, uh, which is Thai boxing, in two thousand and eleven. And that year, um, NDT uh, was still touring a lot. Chromosome um, had just started playing and touring. And actually, our first gig, uh, my first gig with Chromosome, was in the Art House um, right before it shut down. You, um, was it? You joking? So yeah. Yeah, that was a fantastic place. And that was a great example of um, a lot of different scenes coming together. You know, whether it was a hardcore gig or a grindcore gig or a metal gig, it had it had that um, aura or that environment where you could just come down and there'd be people you'd know there and you'd hang out and you'd meet some new people and make some new friends. Yeah. And um, that, that's one of the awesome things about having those venues, uh, those kind of grassroots, uh, sort of the earth type venues where anything goes but they're well run and um, run responsibly. And, yeah. you know, there's there's less and less of them here. Um, I mean, the Tote is probably the closest thing to the art house that's, that's still around. Yeah, certainly. Um, but, um, yeah, to, to get back to the point of your, your question, um, one of the problems, like you say, with the music scene uh, and, and the underground music scene and that sort of counterculture mindset is that it becomes very much us and them, uh, especially things which are politically motivated, like DIY and punk, where you start feeling like an outsider and you start uh, feeling an almost cult-like mindset and you stop paying attention to the world outside of that. And another part of that, when you're touring and in, you're in this cult-like mindset, there's a lot of alcohol and drugs involved. And it's very hard to be disciplined with that, where... You know, you naturally want to have a few drinks. Uh, you're on tour um, you're having fun after the gig. You have too many drinks. Next day you're hung over. You have to meet all new people again. So you have a couple of drinks as a curer so that you're able to make eye contact with people and chat, sh- uh, chat to them and not have the fear. And then after a while of doing that, you sort of become a functional alcoholic without planning to, where 
you know, it's not like you have this desperation to get your hands on alcohol, but you can look up and when you start tracing it back, you go, I've been drinking every day for three months. Wow. And then subconsciously you're like, I've been drinking every day for three months and actually I'm still kind of fine. So you keep doing it and then it becomes easier and easier to do it in the future. And the same happens with, with, with drugs um, when, when you're on tour. And so by around November 2011, that had gotten to the stage where I was almost having a nervous breakdown after coming back from a Japanese tour, um, but taking a lot of sleeping pills and downers. Um, and it was really making me paranoid and affecting my mindset. And I was having issues with my visa at that time where it looked like I might have to leave Australia. So I was in a very dark place mentally. Uh, and I had uh, some friends, a friend of mine, um, Emily Jans, she, she plays in Straight Jacket Nation. She's the drummer. And she was a kickboxer uh, and training in a place in the city called Fight Club. And uh, a friend suggested I should check that out. You know, that might be something good for me in terms of uh, exercise and dealing with depression and, and helping me feel better. So I went down to that gym and I tried a session and I fell in love immediately with uh, kickboxing and Muay Thai. And that slowly took over. Well, very quickly took over. Uh, within a month, I was realized that I wanted to uh, try try competition in it and see what that felt like. And then after that, uh, I think I started training in November 2011 and had my first fight in August 2012. And I just was planning to have just one. Uh, or if I lost, I thought I'd have another. I wanted to see what the feeling of winning was like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I won the first one. Uh, and then it was just, it was too much fun and it, it took over. Uh, and then for the next five years, from uh, basically from 2011 to 2016, uh, training and fighting was the entire focus of my life. And that's really affected me since then in positive ways as well, um, where all through my life, you know, getting getting in trouble in school, being misunderstood by teachers or other students, um, you, you would get in trouble. And that, this was a lot because I wasn't challenged by the school environment. Um, it wasn't interesting to me. It didn't suit me. So you would get in trouble. And discipline was a word that made me see red. Mm. You know, parents, teachers that say, you need to learn discipline. And I'd be like, you can't force me to learn anything. I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, but I came through martial arts and through the practice of martial arts to really understand that discipline, uh, really understand the value of discipline and self-imposed discipline. The discipline is external. It's uh, it's very destructive unless you can work hand in hand with the person who needs it and is benefiting from it and find a way for them to understand. But when you are able to harness and learn self-discipline, there's, there's really nothing you can't do. And that's been extremely valuable for me in terms of uh, strategy and planning and being able to um, choose a goal, research the goal, figure out if it's achievable and how to achieve it and, and go for it uh, and just go, okay, uh, just as like with training, uh, you would have to get up and go running every morning. Then after work, you have to go and train for two or three hours. You have to watch your diet very carefully. It's the same way with work. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to work on my own marketing or on my own website. Well, you have to because three months down the line, you're not going to have any clients unless you do that. You know, I need to... Um, do my accounts uh i don't want to well you have to unless you're not going to have a business yeah and that's all that discipline came from martial arts for me um so aside from all the health and, and the passion and the joy of it that is probably the biggest takeaway i've had which i would why i i, I would recommend it so much for for young people 
um, and and older people. There's no limit on what age to do things like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or, or even Tai Chi. Yeah, I really loved how you um how you outlaid that in regards to discipline, um, and also of course perspective and productivity. Do you think that? I mean, we talked just a little bit before around the you know why we play in bands. You know, it's this accumulation of experiences. Essentially, there's no real monetary exchange um, expected or anything, but it's I guess it's you know gathering experiences. And certainly now we can reflect a lot more on that these are experiences and it's just to soak it up and enjoy. But um, do you think that, I guess, having your hand raised in, you know, KO, like, you know, winning fights um, had that similar sort of, I guess, you know, release of dopamine for you um, in terms of the the thrill of uh, music or musical projects coupled with this new sort of world that you found yourself in? Um. Not really, like kind of, because I mean, the thing is, um, it's very intimidating, you know, as you'd know yourself, when you first start playing gigs, uh, you're terrified um, that you're going to make a fool of yourself, that no one will like it. Uh, but I've, I've played hundreds and hundreds of gigs at this stage, so it's quite passe now, um, even on really big stages, it's fine. Um, but the difference with combat sports is you're not only going to look silly, you're also going to get bashed if you don't perform well. Um, which is much scarier. And, and that was something uh, I was telling myself at um, Pause Fest, where, where I met you, actually, when I was speaking there, because it was, it was a big room and it was quite intimidating to speak there. But I'd actually competed in yeah. a t- tournament there uh, five years previously, uh, quite a big tournament. And so I just kept telling myself, well, you've been in front of even more people here before, and this time no one's trying to punch you in the face. So it's going to be much easier. And that that really helped. Um, but in terms of the dualities between that and music, um, it's there is a similar buzz, but there was something unique to that feeling of combat sports. Because um, I'd played a lot of sports when I was a kid. I, I was interested in everything. Uh, soccer, uh, Gaelic football, which is similar to footy over here, uh, hurling, basketball, everything. Uh, but as soon as I got into music at 16, I'd lost uh, interest in that. Because um, there's a there's a particular mindset, you know, kind of more jock mindset around sports, um, which isn't in the music scene. And then rediscovering that joy in moving and getting exercise was a, a new experience for me, and, and quite different to playing music. Where now music has just sort of become a lifestyle. It's just the thing I do, you know. And whether it's getting on stage or, or recording, uh, there's pleasure in it. But it's sort of just just what I do. Um, as compared to something like uh, combat sports, which was constantly very, very challenging, where you're constantly having to push yourself. But one thing which I found after I started to compete uh, in in Muay Thai was it really improved my performance uh, playing live gigs because there's no point uh, in a fight when you can take your foot off the pedal. Uh, Whether you're defensive or whether you're offensive, you have to be fully aware and fully conscious and engaged with what's happening in front of you at any moment but sometimes yeah. playing a gig you can cruise for a minute and after this i started realizing at every point i was cruising i was like how could i be performing better how could i be engaging the crowd more how could i be moving more and it really benefited me in that way um, and that, that was really interesting to to experience that's awesome i really love that um 
Look, we're, we're getting towards the end of our um, chat, so I don't want to um, disregard and quickly move on from that. But I just, I really love your perspective on discipline and how that started to translate um, in other facets of your life. Obviously, other um, other facets have eventuated. You've had, you know, you've got a married, settled in Australia, had children, um, the works. But um, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, you you know, you, you're, you're in, well, you're in Australia and Melbourne and, um, and you started to get into, I guess, working for some companies here. Um, so one of the companies that you referenced was Loving Earth. Um, you went in there with the intentions of, um, I guess, you know, creating a lifestyle and gathering a wage, but then you quickly sort of changed and moved through different sort of roles. And I think it fundamentally made some things become quite clear for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, cause I guess I'd been working before moving here. I'd been working as an English teacher. Um, and that's, you know, no offense to anyone who's an English teacher, but it can be quite limiting. Um, there's not a whole lot new to learn. Whereas the discipline of communications and marketing, it moves so fast. There's always new things to learn there. And I was fascinated with the whole fabric of marketing and advertising and how it all worked, uh, but sort of from a abhorrent viewpoint, you know, looking at billboards and just rolling my eyes at them or, or looking at advertising campaigns uh, and kind of deconstructing them and going, that's actually quite cool, you know, like that would convince me to get something. So then when I had the opportunity, I just needed any job and that was just a factory job uh, for Loving Earth. It was out in Campbellfield, um, but nobody was doing their marketing and having that DIY mindset, I just kind of put my hand up and was like, can I do a newsletter for you? Can I do your Facebook? Can I do this, that, and the other? And it quickly grew into uh, a management role there where I had to hire people and um, learn about what to do. And, you know, it's um, there are so many courses now in things like digital marketing and so on. But the best thing about it is you can learn it all on your own. You don't really need to go to university for it, in my opinion, um, because, you know, you just look up Google, uh, whatever topic, and there's all sorts of great tutorials there. So you can learn whatever you want in it. Um, but the most experience, the most important thing for me is experience, uh, getting experience under your belt and seeing what it's like in, in the real world, you know, in quotes, um, so that you can start to do that. Um, and something that's been really interesting, which you touched on, uh, was this idea of productivity, where I think, especially in the context of uh, the COVID pandemic, we're starting to question this productivity race that we've all gotten into. Uh, whether through work or technology or just in our lives in general, people are finding it very hard to step back and relax and reflect and go, what am I doing? Um, you know, just as a reflex, we take our phone out of our pocket and start scrolling instead of thinking about what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my day, with my week, with my year? And this is one of the things where through music and through work and through martial arts and all these things, I eventually arrived at where I'm at now of going, well, I don't want to draw a line uh, under productivity and worthwhile behavior having a dollar value on it because my time is so much more valuable to me than a salary or what I can charge per hour. Um, an hour spent with my kids is worth so much more to me than even the biggest consultancy fee I can get for something. And that's something which is, we're at a very strange point in human history and development, because on one hand, there's the potential to make a lot of money very easily through tech. And at the same time, 
you have to ask yourself, what am I making money for? What am I spending my time on? Because there's only so much you can spend. And it's that productivity is um, an obsession. And I think it's something we need to interrogate uh, to a really deep degree because more isn't better. Not that this is completely focused on uh, COVID-19, obviously, but how do you, are you quite aware or cognizant of the, um, your future focus for your work with Purpose Communications um, and also Green Planet shifting and changing by this enforced isolation um, time? Have you noticed some new perspectives uh, in yourself, I, I guess, yeah, j- just related to many of the things that you're talking about. Like, have you reevaluated some of your intentions or value propositions or strategies? Um, to be honest, no. Um, and a lot of that is my wife and I were talking about that uh, the other day about how if this had happened, you know, if we were 10 years younger or if this had happened 10 years ago, we would be in a very precarious position. But the way we have each navigated our careers and built our careers to be something which we can put up, uh, uh, pick up and put a lot of time into and a lot of energy into and then put down while we concentrate on other things. For example, having kids or playing music or training, things which you don't get paid for. We're able to do that because we had a vision for it, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years ago and we constructed that life block by block so that we do have quite an agile approach to things. So. I already, um, you know, I have a co-working space out of home because we've gone through that period of going, it's not tenable, you know, for working the last three years at home, going, okay, we need to separate these things, learning that lesson, doing that. Things like going, okay, we have a wide range of skills, um, which is sort of a trend in the world of work and for younger people that you need to have a very wide range of skills that are complementary or even separate rather than a single career. And so that means that we're quite well set up to, to pivot and to be agile with this, with these things um, in terms of the kind of work that needs to be done. Uh, but I am I'm very concerned about younger people who are finding it harder now to enter the workforce, to get jobs, to build up that experience where they can um, do contract work and know what they're doing and be left to work independently. So to be honest, it, it suits me quite well because I was already on that path and it hasn't made any negative difference for work. But um, mm. in terms of the wider social trends we're going to see out of it, I'm, I'm so concerned uh, in tech in particular. Um, we've gone, Certainly. yeah, like we've gone from looking very closely at Google and uh, Apple and Facebook and making them accountable for their um, business practices to allowing them wholesale into uh, government and society um, below the radar because we need uh, this technology. And you have to, you know, you have to appreciate this technology as well. That we're using right now to do this um, but we also have to find ways to make it more human yeah it's uh i mean 2020 has to be one of the you know has to be like we should be recognizing now that in in the future in retrospect 2020 should have been our greatest period of um, evaluation and assessing everything that sort of is touching our lives i mean our base level responsibility i guess is to get educated but um but as you touched upon it's it's a little bit more difficult for young people who are finding their way we, we have some of the benefit of hindsight and experience and um forming thoughts over over the last little while what, what would you do, say in terms of um 
Look, maybe in terms of some advice for younger people that are coming up that, you know, see a natural affinity to what you've done in your life, whether um, coming out of um, playing in bands or involved in the music industry, whether out of um, DIY print publications, um, whether interested in, you know, cannabis advocacy or, or uh, mental health um, initiatives. Uh, what would, What sort of advice would you pass to people in diving into projects or um, gathering the experience that's a little more relevant than a lot of the education offered uh, at this point in time? Uh, I'd say it's twofold. One is follow your passion, follow your heart. Even if there isn't an obvious career in it right now, keep doing it and Mm. keep doing it because you love it, not because you need to justify to your parents or your teachers or anyone that someday you'll be making money out of it. Just do it because you love it. On the other hand, get that education, take that advice, do listen to your parents and your teachers, because these are things that would have been very hard for me to accept when I was a teenager. I didn't want to finish school. I wanted to drop out. Um, I wasn't even sure about going to university, things like that. Whereas what I learned from university wasn't just about English and modern English. It was about how to study um, how to apply myself where no one was looking over my shoulder. And that's very useful because you can get a salary job where you turn up and it doesn't matter how much work or how little work you do, you're still going home uh, with the same pay packet. But if you want to make things happen in your area of passion, you are going to have to work hard. Nothing's handed out. And it is easier for some people than others, but you're still going to have to work hard. So if you're able to get those educational experiences under your belt, it will help you a lot, even if you're doing an education in, for example, agriculture, and you end up wanting to work in the music industry. It doesn't matter. It's just the experience Mm. of learning. So it's those two things. Don't give up on your passion and also take your opportunities for education. Look, it was a decently loaded question to end it. So, um, you know, a lot in there. And I I like, you know, fatigue you utterly um, right at the end with the biggest (laughs) statement. But no, I really, I really appreciate it. I think, you know, you've conveyed like a massive amount um, today, but it is... um, you know, there's so so many elements within there around, you know, passion and storytelling, um, you know, the pursuit of, I, I guess, seeking the answer to um, an unanswerable question, but also, you know, not necessarily being fatigued by the outcome of things. So gathering experiences, which just help inform, you know, the next decisions you make in your life and just following it a little bit. And certainly not trying to convey it in a, um, a hippie-ish carefree way, but it's, less about a set path and more about just um, being curious about what comes at you. And in terms of what comes at you, um, what, so what is the, what does the next couple of years look like for yourself? Um, just to bring it right back to what we, where we started talking about at the start with Green Planet and Purpose Communications. What does that look like for you? Um, what type of work or projects will you be involved with in, in the near future? Um, honestly, I don't have a clue. And I enjoy that. Um, Something, you know, when my life was a lot more chaotic than it is now, uh, and when I would be feeling the strain of that, things I would tell myself is that I really value that this time last year, I didn't have a clue that I would be here now. And that's something that I still value now, even though my there's a lot of bigger cornerstones in my life, uh, owning a house and paying a mortgage, having kids, running a company, running another website, things like that. I still don't have a clue because, you know, with work, uh, contract work, freelance work, all sorts of things come up and all sorts of interesting opportunities. 
So I'll be happy as long as I'm being challenged and I'm learning and I feel that there's meaning to my work. You know, I can't work just for money. And uh, I got to feel that I'm helping people and I'm helping things. And so as long as I'm doing work, which is creatively satisfying for me and is helping other people, then I'll be happy. Yeah. Well, um, ending on one last thing uh, relating to creative satisfaction. So you had an initial plan for an album release uh, this year, but um, damn COVID um, put a stop to that. So you, as I understand it, you've got a record release coming up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, our new album with Geld is out on July the 3rd. It's called Beyond the Floor. It's being released in North America by Iron Lung Records and in Europe by Static Shock Records from the UK. Um, and yeah, we had a lot of plans, uh, touring, um, you know, and various gigs and so on. But we've had to, along with everyone else, um, take a new look at those plans, which has actually been quite fun because we're figuring out how to do things virtually now. So on July 3rd, on the day of the record release, we're going to have a live, live stream gig, which will be um, on an American website called Cult Nation. Yep. And we'll do a mix of songs from the album and cover songs. Uh, so that'll be fun because that's something new. Amazing. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, look, uh, look, all the very best. I mean, it, um, it's not unrealistic to think that we might do a few more things um, in the future, um, you know, potentially events and, and more. But look, I want to thank you so much for your time. We'll, we'll push out um, a lot of what you've been working on um, through the various social media channels when releasing the podcast episode. But look, thank you again. And, and thanks so much for, um, yeah, the privilege of reading your story, particularly in that summary. It was just absolutely incredible. And I found so many parallels um, in my life. It helps me also, I guess, make sense of some of the, some of the shit I've been involved in, you know, like uh, whether I, you know, that, those elements of feeling like a bit of an outsider is um, is nice to find some some common threads with other people by the same token. Yeah, well, thanks for the for the uh, invitation to the podcast and for giving me the opportunity to reflect on those things because you know, like I mentioned, it's the story isn't over; it's ongoing, and we write our own story, and a lot of it is in how we view ourselves and view ourselves kindly and view ourselves positively. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's been really interesting. Um, I just something which I, I I wanted to mention was today is uh, June the third, so it's the end of Reconciliation Week here. Yeah. Um, and especially with what's going on with Black Lives Matter and um, what's been going going on in the US recently, just something that I, I wanted to uh, bring up because I'm I'm in the process of becoming a citizen in Australia, and that's I think one of uh, our biggest challenges as a country. Like on our last tour uh, in Europe, someone asked me where I was from and I said, I, I'm from Melbourne. And I said, oh, wait a second, I'm from Ireland, actually. But I feel now I'm from, from Melbourne, I'm from Australia uh, to a certain extent. My kids are Australian, my future is in Australia. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about Australia, that there is uh, the ability for us to have a shifting and a changing identity, which is welcoming to people from other countries. And it's very sad that it's not very welcoming to people from our own country and yeah. um, indigenous and first nations people here and just the kind of um outpouring and, and anger and grief and protests and support that's happening over what's going on in the united states we really have to look at what's happening here as well uh and you know this that's we could have a whole podcast on that but it's good a good opportunity for us to challenge ourselves thinking what can i do how can i help this scenario in my own life yeah and look um before actually 
diving right out. So I know that you, you, um, you'd also done some, well, you'd had some involvement in some um, more remote um, communities around Australia. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that happened through uh, Loving Earth, uh, working in, in WA out in Western Australia in uh, around Broome in the Kimberley. Um, I began working with a man named Bruno Dan uh, and his tribe, the Nyulnyul. Uh, we became good friends and I've been out there three or four times now working on various projects with them. And it was such a different perspective on uh, reality and on life uh, and on time uh, and everything. When you get out to country, and you start to um, let go of the modern world and appreciate that um, that older wisdom, uh, ideas around plants, plant life, our symbiosis with the world, um, it gives you a completely different perspective. And I think it's it's very sad that Australian people, both black and white, are dispossessed from that wisdom and that knowledge, which we need, which we saw and we will see again in the bushfires and in our environmental management here which I learned all about from those guys. So it's very interesting to see. There is a quiet conversation around. We need to look to Indigenous knowledge to help us with that. But I hope people are going to pay more attention because, you know, it feels a lot of the time these days that we're reeling from one crisis to the next and uh, climate change is real. It's on the horizon and there's knowledge in this country that can help to mitigate it. So I hope we can start to respect that. Certainly, positive things new, do need to eventuate, such as um, at the very least, as we mentioned before, around getting um, curious and getting educated um, around um, these factors and giving a shit, um, essentially. So, um, yes, it's, uh, it is ironic because we're yeah, right this second while having this chat, we're in um, quite significant uh, time. So it um, be interesting to sort of, I guess, see what the current status of the world is when, when the podcast is released. But look, thank you for conveying that. And um, it's a really interesting perspective for you, obviously, in, in calling this um, country home, even with its troubled history and, and ongoing um, challenges to see where that sort of leads to in the coming future. But you know, we want to have a better world for our kids and, and to give a shit about the world as we just spoke about. Yeah, yeah. And um, I love Australia. I think we can do better as well. Um, and we, we all have a responsibility and a privilege to be able to uh, be involved in that. Absolutely. Look, I, I'm, um, I'm going to end it there because we're, we're not having a super long form episode. But um, as I mentioned, we'll probably do something in the future. So keep an eye out. But Cormac Sheen, I want to thank you so much for appearing today. Thank you very much for outlaying your um your really incredible story. And look, all the very best for the near future. I can't wait to see what um what eventuates. Cool. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'll chat to you soon. Take care. Beauty. Thanks. Uh, that was my chat with Cormac Sheehan as part of the A Lot to Say podcast. An absolute pleasure to have him involved. And yeah, he he recently had his album launch with his band Geld, um, held online out of necessity. I uh, had great intentions to have the podcast episode released before that um, album launch, but, you know, COVID, life gets in the way as I say. But to emphasize a bit more about what Cormac's been involved in, you can find Purpose Communications online at purposecommunications.com.au and Green Planet online at greenplanet.com.au. So if you'd like more information on cannabis, hemp, 
CBD oil and the health benefits of those amongst other facets, do check it out. Check out his psychedelic hardcore band, Geld, at geld.bandcamp.com. So I've been your host, Gary Williams, or Gaz, as many people call me. Music on the chit-chat is by my band, Bateman. You can find us on Bandcamp. And you can follow a lot to say on the Alt Project social media channels at Alt Projects. Again, thank you so much for joining. Catch you on the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.